0: Good morning. Turn with me your Bibles to uh, the book of James. Kids, in uh, the Bibles that we have given you, or the Bible on the back table, Um, that can be found on page 1011. 1011. Last week, James told us to consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. And this week he's going to expound on trials of many kinds that we see in verses 5 through 18. We're going to be discussing some common trials that we have in life, the trials of uncertainty, the trials of our current circumstances, the trials of temptation. And he's also going to show us how we can hope, um, uh, how we can hope to be steadfast while experiencing these trials. So let's begin reading in James chapter 1, verse 5. We'll be in there through uh, verse 18. This is God's Word. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures this is god's word so the first thing we see here when we're experiencing trials of many kinds that we that we have to lay as a foundation is that we serve a generous, giving God. That's our first point. The bedrock for the Christian in trials is the generous, giving God. The generous, giving God. We see this in verse 5. This may have been lost in last week's message. When we talk about steadfastness, we can be led to think that we're left to ourselves in trials. Go off and do your best. And if you're able to stand firm, then look at what will accrue to you. Look at how you'll be changed if you're able to, to uh, um, uh, weather the storm. We may think that God is involved and he's uh, that God's involved and he's allowing to use these trials uh, in our lives. But he's left us alone to see how we'll how we'll do, how we'll fare under them. We talked about being under a heavy burden and for a long period of time. But we may think that God is distant while we're enduring this burden. And yeah, he's just waiting to scoop us up when things get tough. But that is not the picture that James wants us to see or to have of our God. Our God is a generous God. As a matter of fact here, the word here is let him ask the giving God. Let him ask the giving God. You want to know something of God's character? God gives. God is not a withholding God. God is a giving God. God gives. Yes, he gives trials. We saw the value of those trials last week. But giving in every way is part of his character. He gives and gives and gives. He gives generously. He is an abundant giver. He's not a reluctant giver either. He gives generously to all. We see that there in verse 5. He gives generously to all. It's important for us to know that he gives generously. I think it's important not only to note that God is generous, but also that God wants us to ask him for things. James will say in chapter 4 that we have not because we ask not. And so if we want to live steadfast lives, if our imaginations and our hearts have been captivated by what we saw last week, the the beauty and the glory of standing steadfast in trials, if we want to be perfect, if we want to be complete, if we want to lack nothing, then God invites us to ask him for help in doing so. And he will give. If you ask, he will give. You see that there in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And he I don't want to skip over that with without reproach. What does this mean? The old NIV says, He gives generously to all without finding fault. He doesn't say, you know what, you haven't listened to a thing I've said. Why is this going to be any different this time than every other time you've asked me? No, I'm not going to do a lot of good this is going to do. I'm just, might as well shout it into my pillow. I'm done. I'm not saying anything to you. No, you prove you're ready to act. And when you show me that you mean business, then maybe I'll give you wisdom. God does not give that way. He doesn't do that. Why? Because if he doesn't give us wisdom, then we are doing what we're, what seems good to us to do. And he's finding fault with that. He's like, if I don't give you wisdom, you're without hope. If I don't give you wisdom, you're just going to disobey me. So it's in his best interest to give generously to all without reproach. So we have a God that generously provides opportunities for us to trust him. But he also provides strength for us to grow in steadfastness, to trust him more. And he provides wisdom whenever we ask. And he doesn't find fault with us. Before we even look at a trial, know that God is a generous giver. So let's move on in verses five through eight we come again we come to the trials of uncertainty you may have left church last sunday and thought wow this all makes so much perfect sense to me i mean i'm remained i'm to remain steadfast under these different trials of life and by doing so god is building me building me this christ likeness that will never fade yeah i can do that let's do it and then monday morning rolls around and you realize Everything that seemed so clear and evident yesterday is a big, dark, foggy mess on Monday morning. So many things in life are gray. Are we shown the path to walk? And, um, 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 you know, I mean, we see that we may be shown the path that we feel we're supposed to walk in but that way is closed to us and we're hemmed on on every side and we don't know what to do well i feel like i'm supposed to do this but i can't we do all that we can and we tell the lord okay we pray it's in your hands lord we can't do any more if you don't act we're sunk and then the days go by and he doesn't act and so somehow after praying lord it's all in your hands we go back and we try to pit it back in our hands and try to help him along maybe prime the pump a little bit okay lord i said it's in your hands but let me give you a boost here and, and get you get you moving again or we see that we see pressure and difficulty and uh that's building in our lives and the stakes are seemingly getting higher and higher and higher by the minute but the lord seems silent and we don't know what to do and we don't have any direction or maybe the uncertainty is a big opportunity in life that we sense the window closing to take advantage of. And even though we're not certain of the right thing to do, we, do we act or do we wait? What do we do? And, and we just, it just seems like the clock is ticking, but the Lord is silent. Oftentimes, I'm not sure whether I'm complacent or patient. I can't decide which one of those I'm at, I'm doing at the moment. I don't know about you, but it seems like my situation in life um, is, as the folks back home used to say, we find ourselves in a position that we don't know the difference between come here and sick them. It's just life is upside down and we do not know the way to go. What do we do in times of uncertainty? Ask God for wisdom. Ask God to show you his steps. He may encourage you through his word. He may show you another aspect to your situation that you didn't realize through the wisdom of a brother or sister in the church. He may give you an uneasy spirit. But we can ask for wisdom confidently because God is a generous giver. He gives generously to all without finding fault. But James tells us in verse 6 that when we ask, we should ask in faith with no doubting. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have doubts or moments of weakness in faith. After all, we just read in verse 3 last week that our faith is tested. What is faithless in us is removed, and uh, the faith that we do have is strengthened. And so this is a process that faithlessness in us is, in, is revealed. The reason we're experiencing these trials is to make our faith stronger. And so it doesn't mean don't You can't doubt if you doubt, you know, it's like, oh, if you've got any doubt at all, then eh, all bets are off. God's not going to God's not going to uh, uh, answer your prayers. But I think we have to take verses six through eight together where we learn what doubting is really like. James is calling us uh, calling uh, to mind that uh, uh, a double mindedness. Doubt is double mindedness. Where we're couple, working a couple of different angles at the same time. I'm praying that God will act or intervene on my behalf and telling him he's my only hope, while at the same time, I'm working plan B on the other side. So I can, if God doesn't give me what I want or doesn't deliver in my preferred way or on my timetable, then I'm able to accomplish it in another fashion. Along those lines, we know that God brings about trials for our spiritual maturity and he invites us to pray for wisdom so that we may be steadfast. But our personal goal may not only be steadfastness, but it may be ease or it may be advancement or it may be personal fulfillment. James is saying that person, that one that's trying to leverage God's wisdom or God's uh, promises of steadfastness into earthly gain that's double minded that man shouldn't pretend to receive anything from the Lord you can't pretend to be living for steadfastness while at the same time seeking to feather your own nest in this life and presume to receive anything from God so how can we explain the thousands of times in life that we ask for things and no answers come or no way clears I don't know about you, but that is a large portion of life, right? Very seldom do I ask Lord, please give me wisdom. And then like in in your quiet time, fifteen minutes later, you know, you hear the angels in heaven singing and, and all of a sudden, ah, oh, I know which way to walk. That doesn't happen. God doesn't give us wisdom to know the hidden secrets of God or the secrets to uh, unlock life success. Instead, he gives us a wisdom to remain steadfast. He builds in us patience. As the hymn says, he gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. In wisdom, we learn that my ways aren't God's ways. And my timetable is not God's timetable. What appears to me to be a crisis in the moment may not be a crisis to God. That what appears to be an opportunity of a lifetime may be an opportunity to trust in God's ways over my own. What I view as a humiliating episode, the Lord may see as an opportunity for deep repentance. I learn that while the answer may be yes, or ultimately yes, it may not be right now. James shows us and In verses 6 through 8, that the one who takes on a two-front approach doesn't succeed in any of them. While we should seek perfection and completeness, instead we're bobbing up and down on on this sea and tossed to and fro by the waves. We're inconsistent, we're unsteady, we're blown here and there, unstable in all our ways. When a man is driven by his own desires or purposes in the moments of confusion... He lacks consistency. He lacks certitude. And he does not emulate the character of God that God is calling this trial to to create in us. But not the believer, not the one who is captivated for the promises of steadfastness. In the times of uncertainty, in the times of waiting, in the times that we don't know what's best for us, We want to remain steadfast in those times. It's exactly in those times where you don't get the answer or when things don't seem to be moving that the Lord is building his completeness and his perfection and is filling up what is lacking in you. In verses 9 through 11, we see a new trial the trial of current circumstances. Obviously, this represents, we see the lowly brother boasting his exaltation and the rich one in his humiliation. And so we see this spectrum of life of all circumstances. Both poverty and prosperity can represent significant trials for the believer. And you may be sitting there thinking, okay, well, if poverty is a trial and prosperity is a trial, Lord, please give me the, the the." trial of prosperity that's what i want but both of these trials have a tendency to divert our thoughts and hopes from the present circumstances and, and and take our eyes off the true realities that await us or the true realities that we have this life is fleeting and passing away and so what we experience here is not certain to carry on As the commercials say, past results are not indicative of of future performance. Poverty can discourage us to the point to thinking that God is always a God that holds out on his people. Prosperity can discourage us from um, looking to the hope of eternal life or cause us to assume that the success that we're experiencing here will carry on into eternity. James could've gone in a bunch of different directions here other than rich or poor. He could've said health or sickness. He could've said loneliness and companionship. He could've said unemployment and fulfilling work. But Every one of those scenarios represent different challenges for us, but they all share the same basic trial. We are prone to think that our current circumstances are set in concrete for eternity. But James here encourages us to boast in to boast in to relish in those things, those circumstances of life that remind us of our actual standing before the Lord in our in our true position before the Lord. James is saying, "Draw near to those things in life that remind you of your true position in the fleeting nature of your current circumstances." For the low or poor brother or sister Jesus I mean Jesus did this all the time for the lowly Jesus said gave the beatitudes blessed are the poor in spirit why for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you here who are lowly who are poor and then he says but think heavenward think where you are going to be blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you and utter all kinds of evil uh, against you and uh, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice in those things. Why? Because there is a true reality that awaits you. Your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we see it right there. Rejoice and be glad here because there you will experience great reward. Not here, but in heaven. This is what makes the prosperity gospel so wicked. It takes these promises that are meant to encourage brothers and sisters who are in poverty... And it doesn't set their hopes there. It sets their hopes here. It's, it, 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 it says, "Take your troop." It says, "Don't worry about your true position before the Lord." Let me say, let me tell you that though you're poor right now, if you if you pray this way, God's going to make you rich, and He's going to turn them into that rich man who will fade in his pursuits that James warns about. He's like, if you play your cards right and if you pray, God is a faithful God and he'll give you everything you want here. Everything you want here that is passing away. Like the flower of the grass of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The prosperity gospel says... Don't be discouraged any longer. He'll give you everything you want that's going to fade away in its pursuits. It's wicked. It's wicked. But James is telling us, no, be encouraged here with your true position, your true position in heaven. That's why we read Colossians 3. Set your mind on heavenly things. Set your mind on there, where Christ is seated in the heavenly realms, there's where your life is. And when Christ appears, Christ who is your life, when he appears, you will also see, be seated with him in glory. So, how does the believer remain steadfast in their current circumstances of life? By seeking wisdom from above to remind them of their true position before the Lord. Jesus did this all the time, even for the rich. You know, I mean, he did it He did it for the poor as well. You know, if you've got a banquet, don't invite people who can repay you. Don't invite your brother or the rich people who can repay you. Invite the poor people who can't repay you. And <clears throat> by doing so, you're encouraging them. You're encouraging them by giving them a glimpse into their eternal position before the Lord. What did he tell the rich man in Mark 10? Sell all you have and give to the poor. Why? Because you will have treasure in heaven. You'll have treasure there. Be poor here. Get Don't place your hope here. Place it there. Loosen, loose your, yourself or your idea of your idea of blessedness and sufficiency here. So that you may have true treasure there. What did he tell the Pharisees? Those who are healthy have no need of a physician. Rich people presume they don't need anything from anyone. They're independent. I can take care of myself. I don't need God. But Jesus is telling them, your self-righteousness clouds your ability to see things as they really are. What does Jesus tell the church of Laodicea in in Revelations 3.17? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus, the the whole New Testament from start to finish is telling people from, from the gospels to Revelation, look, don't get tied up into your current position. But let's look, let's look at the true reality of things. Let's look at our true need. Let's look at our true hope, and let's set our mind on things there. That is where your life is. For the poor, don't be discouraged. This life is short. You're storing up for yourselves treasures above where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For the rich, don't dwell on this life. These things are fleeting. They can't be trusted. Embrace opportunities for you to see your humiliation and your wretchedness and your deep need for the Lord. In verses 12 through 15, James moves on to the trials of temptation James begins this section there in verse 12 with an an exhortation a restatement of an exhortation he made up in in verses uh, 2 and 3 here he says blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial in verses 2 and 3 he was encouraging us with the value of steadfastness in this life you'll be perfect, you'll be complete you'll be lacking in nothing In verse 12, he encourages us with the value of steadfastness in the next life. When we have stood the test, when we persevere to the end of this life, we'll receive the crown of life, the the victor's wreath, the prize for winning the race. And how does James describe the one who perseveres, who remains steadfast under trial? He is the one who loves him. Look at the end of verse 12 which God has promised to those who love him. We shouldn't miss this. This is the only <clears throat> this is a thing that truly enables us to to remain steadfast, our love for God. If we don't love God, then there is no nothing really compelling enough outside of that to say no to the lures and the traps of this life. If the promises of gold and riches and trophies in heaven are what are driving us, then we can easily say, okay, yeah, it may pay off more in heaven. It's like, a, uh, do you take your pension later or do you take it now? Yeah, it may it may be bigger there, but I'll just I'll take my rewards and my gold and my trophies here. I'll do it here. I don't need it there. I'll, I'll get mine here. Or if the promises of no more sorrow or no more pain are the things that are so attractive in and of themselves about heaven. And then we can easily say, well, I figured out a way to eliminate sorrow and pain here. I place my hope in technology and, and advancement. I've, I figured out a, um, um, or I'll do it with the pursuit of pleasure and numbing pain or, or I'll salve my hurts. And, but if it's the love of God and the love for God um, that is the basis of our steadfastness, then that is something that will last over time. Psalm uh, 73, 25-28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far away from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. We can love God because he first loved us. He loved us and he gave himself up for us. He gave us new hearts to desire him above all things. This is important to stress that love is the basis of this steadfastness, because when we get to chapter 4, James will call the people he's writing to adulterers. He's saying, you've abandoned your first love. You've chosen the things of this world over the love of God. And so the love is the basis. uh, This love is the basis for the trial that James speaks of here in verses 12 through 15, which is the trial of temptation. James helps the Christian remain steadfast by taking the mask off of temptation. He shows us how temptation works in verses 12 through 15. For one, um, he shows us temptation's game plan, that it springs upon us. It, it's not, we're not expecting it. When you read this section, it's very choppy. We move from one thing to the next very quickly. And temptation is kind of hidden there in 12 through 15. You know, you start with, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, I think I know where you're going. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, all of a sudden temptation springs upon you right away. It just comes with no warning. <clears throat> the wisdom, um, 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 the, um, lost my place. This is the, uh, we're not expecting temptation when it when it comes. But James is quick to point out that yes, God allows these trials to be sprung upon us when we're not expecting it. We can say that God even ordains them. Yes, God does allow these temptations to come. Yes, He allows us to struggle with them. But we cannot say that God is the one tempting us. He says there in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Temptation is an impulse to sin. God doesn't have that desire for evil. And so therefore, he cannot desire that impulse for us. He can't desire that impulse to be brought about in man his image bearers. And so God tempts no one. God allows trials to come so that we may learn steadfastness. So when we're tempted, who's doing the tempting? James clearly says in verse 13 that it's not God the one that are doing the tempting. So who's doing it? Is it the devil? <clears throat> The answer is surprising in verse 14. You are. You're the one doing the tempting. The tempting voice we hear is that of our own sinful nature inside of us. We always have that struggle going on in our heads. Will we follow God's ways, which may mean short-term pain or perceived setback, or will we follow God's ways? Um, I mean, or will we follow our ways, which no surprise, match up very well with what we want to do. And so we're always prone to try to bargain with God. We're always prone to honor him with our lips, but somehow manipulate things so that we may get what we want. We also uh, do what we want to do. And it's at this junction of steadfastness and temptation that, um, um, that we see the struggle really come about here, um, I'm being tempted, um, uh, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It all happens very quickly. And steadfastness in the moment is hard to identify. I was looking for a definition of temptation this week. And surprisingly, I found the best definition for temptation in Wikipedia. Listen to this. Temptation is a desire to engage in short-term urges for enjoyment that threatens long-term goals. Temptation is a desire to engage in short-term urges for enjoyment that threatens long-term goals. This is the moment. This is the moment we're in right here. Will we remain steadfast with the short-term urge for enjoyment when the short-term urge for enjoyment comes? Or will we encourage ourselves in the moment with the long-term goals of verses 3 and 4 and in verse 12? Will we we hold out for the long-term goals both in this life and in the life to come? James paints a very vivid picture here in verses 14 and 15. Um, Of how sin comes about. We're enticed by our own desires. Desires don't come from outside. Desires come from within. They're always going to be there. All those desires that we have. We may be discouraged to hear this. But those desires that we have. Don't go away. I remember C.S. Lewis one time said. It's better. um, um, It's good To have an itch and not scratch it, but it's better to not have the itch at all. And so unfortunately here in this life, we're going to be dealing with itches for all of life. And so what do we do when that itch comes about? They're always going to be there. We may be new creatures, but the old self still exists. We're often discouraged and Surprised by how active and vocal the old self is still inside of us. But this isn't sin. That urge isn't sin. It's the struggle of life. There's another step where it becomes sin when desire conceives, when desire finds a willing partner. And that willing partner is you. When we don't flee from it, when we don't encourage ourselves with the long-term goals, the blessings of steadfastness, but whether rather we seek to engage with those desires. When we seek to engage with those desires, it gives birth to sin. James employs this sexual metaphor here, but it certainly isn't limited to that. We can choose to pursue our own purposes in a project or placing our trust or Finding our rest in the alcohol or food rather than God, or choosing to lash out at a loved one in frustration rather than suffer discouragement or or, or um, embarrassment or setback in the moment. But it can that that can be any number of things. But I think for the hope um, for the hope of the believer, I think we see something interesting in verse fifteen. I think there's a lot of hope in the comma in verse 15. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now there's a lot of room between the birth of sin and sin when it is fully grown. Yes, we partner when we partner with the desires of the old self, we are sinning. We do give birth to sin. But we don't have to let it grow up. We don't have to let sin mature. We can kill it. We can put sin to death. We can put it to death by confessing of it, repenting of it, turning our back on it, renouncing our participation with it. But don't be mistaken. When sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Sin left unchecked in one area of your life will slowly move itself into other areas of your life. When you don't check the desire of the old self in one area, it will slowly, methodically work itself through all areas of your life. Don't be fooled on that. This is why in just a few minutes when we do the Lord's Supper, we'll have an opportunity for confession. And we'll think about those things that we've done, and we'll confess them once again, both silently and corporately. We'll assess assess how how we're standing against the old self, and repent anew, and be restored, so that we can kill sin today. We're going to have the opportunity in just a second to kill sin once again. In our lives. In this little section, I think we see here an expanded definition or picture of what steadfastness looks like. Steadfastness acknowledges that we're going to have lingering desires uh, from our old ways of life. And we're constantly going to be butting up against God's ways and commands and purposes. And we have choices to make every step of the way, every moment of every day. And there are going to be times when desires are given privilege in our minds and we're going to fall prey to sin. Does that mean we're not steadfast? No, steadfastness is acknowledging the harmful effects of that in the moment, the disastrous effects long term left unchecked. And so steadfastness is also quickly turning from sin and killing it so that it may have a place no longer in our lives steadfastness is fighting for faith it's refraining from sin but it's also quickly repenting from the sin that we do commit confident that ultimately sin leads to death we're not called to white knuckle steadfastness in this life but we're invited to rest on god and his ways james calls us back to remember where we began in verses 16 through 18 This is our last point. Remember God's ungenerous, unchanging grace. Remember God's generous, unchanging grace. Don't be deceived, deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Don't think that God has set up this gauntlet of trials for you in life that you have to to navigate, navigate your way through and prove your worth to God. No, every one of these trials is God's good and perfect gift to you that God gives us to make him make us more like him. Remember who you're dealing with here. The father of lights. Your father, who's also the creator. He created light. He created all of it. And what did he say when he created it? It is good. And what did he say when he created man in his own image? It is very good. This is a good thing that God did. And that has not changed. It is a good thing that God did. God made us his image bearers on this earth. Have things gone wrong on earth when sin entered the world? Absolutely. But God hasn't changed. God's plans are are perfect no before the foundation of the world the father the son and the holy spirit in the heavenly realms ordained that Jesus would leave heaven enter into this sinful world and live perfectly like no one ever has and no one ever would and he died the death that we deserve from our unchecked sin and Jesus was raised from the dead as proof that that penalty for sin had been paid and those who give evidence of the new of the grace God has shown them by believing on him would be given new life a new disposition to desire good things and to choose God's ways over their own to remain steadfast against this wicked world this is God's purpose in you to make you a trophy of his grace Of his own will, he brought you forth. He brought you forth by the word of truth that you hear here today. He gave you ears to hear and eyes to see so that you may bring him glory. He's not setting you up. He's building you up through these trials so that you may be steadfast. Why would he ever set up a world to tear you down? You're the first fruits of his glory. Don't be deceived. The trials of this life are hard. They're real. But they're meant for our good. When we remain steadfast in them, by standing against our old desires and repenting when we don't, we are being made perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under these trials of many kinds. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a patient, generous God. We thank you that you give generously to all without finding fault. There's plenty of fault to be found. But Lord, thank you that you are so generous with us. Lord God, we pray that you would encourage us with these words that we read today. We pray that you would help us to stand steadfast and patient in trials when the circumstances of life seem like we are waiting or we don't know what to do but lord we pray that we would look to you the author and perfecter of our faith and that you would lead us not to a desired outcome but that you would create in us lord what you desire for us and that you would make us look like you we long to see you face to face So come quickly, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.